0: This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Brain Matters. This is Matt Davis. Uh,
0: Along with Anthony Lacanina.
1: Hey dude, how's it been?
0: It's Ben Grayman. How are you?
1: Good. Uh your voice sounds a little gravelly today.
0: Yeah, I was I was going to say sorry to anyone listening. Uh yeah, my voice. Yeah, it's a little shot. I What were uh, you doing? I did some karaoke last night and yeah, you know, I really get into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You do you have a go-to song?
0: Yeah, Usher. Con- Usher. Usher Confessions <laughs> Part 2. That's kind of my favorite. Damn. That's a
1: good choice. That's a good choice. I like a, I like a classic rock
0: Okay, so your journeys, your
1: Jer- no, that's a little too cliche. You know? I agree. Yeah, like like sticks. Okay, come sail away. Is
0: that? Come that you're still treading on.
1: Is that a little too similar
0: grounds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about a what about a good old like Bruce Springsteen or a David Bowie? A little Born to Run. Yeah. Okay, so like usual, I'm gonna guess that you talked to someone today. Could you tell me who that was?
1: Oh, I certainly did. Her name is Dr. Joanna Jankowski, and she's an assistant professor at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Her lab is interested in studying the initiation and progression of Alzheimer's disease, also while exploring possible therapeutic interventions.
0: So she studies Alzheimer's disease. Can you tell me a little bit about what you know about this disease?
1: Yeah, we'll definitely get into it in the interview, but it's quite devastating, actually. It's the only cause of death in the top 10 that cannot be prevented, cured, or slowed.
0: Really? Ooh, that's that's not good news right now, man.
1: Yeah, man. A third of seniors die of Alzheimer's. This is all according to the Alzheimer's Association, so it's really impactful on our society. And it causes a significant societal and financial burden.
0: It's a really scary thing because suddenly, you know, our memories, we like to think, kind of define who we are. And this disease kind of takes that away from you as you start forgetting. For me personally, it's a very kind of scary thing to happen. And so, but I actually didn't even realize that it itself is a cause of death. How does that happen?
1: There's massive neurodegeneration that manifests Losing some very critical areas of the brain that are important for life-sustaining functions.
0: Okay, yeah, it seems though, right? Memory seems to be like the first thing. That's when you suddenly realize that this disease is coming on, or at least is starting to develop.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think that's sort of the classic. Your memory's not as good as it is, so let's go in for a check and see what's going on.
0: Yeah, why would that be? Do you know why? Why it would start affecting sort of memory first?
1: Well, it seems to be that. The pathology develops in the brain, in the centers of the brain that are important for learning and memory. And early on, that seems to be the most targeted areas, the hippocampus, central renal cortex and whatnot. So as the pathology develops, it's hitting those memory centers, and then you get symptomatic memory loss.
0: I see. Okay, it seems like it's been around for a while. Have we made much progress? What's the hope at the moment? What's the current status?
1: We've made some progress, but there's still a lot to do. There's still several competing hypotheses about what the actual cause of Alzheimer's is uh, in terms of the molecular and cellular changes. There's also been recently some clinical trials. Drug companies have developed some drugs to hopefully target and slow down the progression of Alzheimer's, and these have targeted amyloid beta, which is a molecule that accumulates, if you've heard of these plaques and whatnot, that seems to be a hallmark of the disease. And so the idea of these trials was to give a drug that would reduce the amyloid beta load and hopefully relieve symptoms. Most of these trials have not panned out so well, so it didn't look like they were able to successfully reduce the symptoms of the disease. So, you know, there's thoughts maybe they need to give these drugs a lot earlier before the plaques actually start developing and causing the damage and whatnot. or Maybe that's not the the main thing that needs to be fixed. Maybe this is a side effect or something. So there, there's a lot lot of research still to be done, but certainly the amyloid beta is is important uh, manifestation of the disease that's worthy of of study.
0: Okay. So unfortunately, that's not the golden bullet. We can't it seemingly just try to stop the amyloid beta, even though that's a hallmark of the disease. Are there more current ideas? I have have new things kind of come out. And what's the new path that people are kind of treading on?
1: There's some ideas that maybe dual interventions, not just amyloid beta, but something else, you know, attacking that in sort of a, a dual dualistic way, you know, multimodal way. So there, there's some research into that, and and we'll get a little bit more into that in the interview.
0: Could you tell me also how does how does Dr. Jankowski study these things?
1: She studies Alzheimer's primarily in the mouse. There's a lot. There's several different mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, and we do mice
0: get Alzheimer's naturally.
1: They do not. Mm, lucky them. Yeah, the lucky them. What we like, what we do is they do we, get
0: eaten by owls, though.
1: Yes, yes. So I suppose that's the trade-off. You know, like where, where do you do you want Alzheimer's or do you want to get eaten by an owl? You know, these are the choices we have as different species on this planet Earth.
0: Yeah, I don't know what I. I don't know. <laughs> Where
1: were we before?
0: We went on oh, the um, model mouse models. I yes, said, do, okay, do, mice get, do mice get Alzheimer's?
1: Not normally, but we have a lot of different models that could that we introduce to mimic some of the symptoms of the, of the disease. We can get mice to overexpress amyloid beta, develop plaques and whatnot. And there's there's other sorts of models. And Dr. Jankowski is really interested in characterizing these models and knowing. Hey, can I, you know, what are the results of different models? When do they develop plaques? Do they, what are the molecular uh, underpinnings of all of this? So she's really contributed a lot to developing these tools.
0: Awesome. Well, okay. So we know that uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, is one of the major causes of dementia as you age, but is there a difference between just normal aging brain and a uh, brain that has Alzheimer's disease?
1: I think there's a little bit of a confusion between alzheimer's dementia and sort of the normal aging process you know as you get older uh there there's does seem to be a bit of a memory hit and memory loss and people are wondering is that kind of like alzheimer's or is it dementia or you know what exactly is going on there um we actually saw a talk recently um uh by dr carol barnes at the university of arizona and she talked a lot about the neurobiology of aging and one of her big points was that young and old neurons they look pretty similar you know a lot of the properties are shared across them, and there's very little neuronal loss in aging. Perhaps maybe some plasticity mechanisms are altered, and that's what is is part of the problem with age related memory loss. but this is really in contrast to something like Alzheimer's disease, which is characterized by extensive neural degeneration. so keep that in mind, you know that normal aging is not a bunch of neuronal loss I see. It's something a lot more subtle, but Alzheimer's disease is devastating to brain function because there's massive neurodegeneration.
0: Well, this all sounds extremely fascinating, and I would love to hear the interview if you would let us do that.
1: I would let you do that. Okay, great. And I would tell our listeners to perk up them cochlea.
0: Uh, I I can't do it. I've been trying really hard. Exercise after exercise, no perking.
1: You just have to sit in your chair. You have to be very quiet. And you have to imagine your cochlea expanding like a balloon.
0: Okay, I'm not going to try it right now. And
1: unrolling, like... I'm trying. Don't pop a vein, buddy. Stay with me. Uh, Sorry, listeners, I'm going to have to go clean that up. Well thank you for joining us today. My really pleasure. appreciate it. Um wanted to start off, get some of your background, actually. Like where did you grow up?
2: I grew up outside of Philadelphia and I did glad you cannot hear that in my accent. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
1: So um, So sort of in the suburbs of Philadelphia or something. Definitely in
2: the suburbs, yeah. In yeah. an area called Bucks County that's right on the border with New Jersey.
1: Great. Was uh, were your parents academics or
2: no, not at all. Yeah. So uh, I They told me that I was to go to higher levels of college than they had achieved, and they were each the first ones in their family to get bachelor's degrees. So they fully expected my sister and I would go on to get graduate degrees,
1: and we both have. And so, does that mean your children are going to have to go to higher levels of education that you achieved? And, <laughs> and that means two PhDs, or if we're going to, we're going to continue down this.
2: Stage. Yes, right now, my children is one pet rabbit, and so go. he's going to have a heck of a challenge oh on that goodness. one. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of rabbits at
2: Carrot like, Academy, you know. or something. Yep. <laughs>
1: Indeed. And uh, where did you go to undergrad?
2: Undergraduate was Amherst College in Western Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So I did the whole liberal New England arts. thing. Yeah, yes, yeah. liberal arts.
1: Do you feel like that that liberal arts perspective, uh, how did that mold you into becoming a scientist?
2: So I think I wanted to become a scientist from, from very early ages, or at least wanted to go into medicine and neuroscience from very early ages. Was there very something early specific ages.
1: that sparked that, or...?
2: So, my father was not an academic, but he was a scientist. He was a research scientist for the Navy. So, I'd always been around science my whole life. And my dad was really good about introducing us to biology. He loved nature. And so, that was, those are some of my favorite memories from my childhood were being with dad, you know, poking around the backyard in the creek or in the pond and identifying fish and various things. Um, But no, at Amherst, I had an outstanding neuroscience teacher, and I think he had a very big influence on my decision to go to neuroscience graduate school. Yeah. So Steve yeah. George, he's just retired this past year, but he, everybody who has gone through Amherst neuroscience for about the past 25 years will attribute their staying in neuroscience to this one professor, Steve George.
1: Wonderful. Were you able to work on uh, projects of your own uh, at Amherst?
2: No, I think because I knew I would be going into research full-time for the rest of my career, I wanted to use my time there to do liberal arts. And so instead, I did things like you know, medieval history and painting and sculpture and things like that. So I took the credits doing things that I would never again have the opportunity to do.
1: Okay. I was just about to say, did, were you able to hold on to any of these things past your time in college, some of those other things that you studied?
2: Well, in as much as, you know, I'm now reading a book on the War of the Roses, and I have, you know, as much as time's permitted, which has been much less lately since I've taken on a professorship, is I've always done sort of artistic things, whether it's been pottery or sewing or stuff like that, so yes, in that regard.
1: And um, where did you do your PhD?
2: I did my PhD at Caltech uh, in Pasadena, California.
1: What were the main questions you were asking during your dissertation work?
2: So I came in wanting to understand how memory works. And as you know, that's a very, very big very question. And that did Indeed. not end up being what I answered as a PhD student. Come on. What? Come on. Yeah, <laughs> leave something for everybody else. Uh, no, I ended up working. And the thing that really drove me during my graduate studies, I was working on trying to understand cytokine regulation as a result of synaptic plasticity in the brain. That turns out to be really hard because it's very subtle, Mm -hmm. but what it did lead me into were studies that would give me, that I I used a positive control, which was the induction of epilepsy. And so I ended up working on epilepsy as a PhD student, and I think that really drove my career in a clinically relevant direction.
1: Great. And then um, from there... Uh, Did uh, did you have a postdoc?
2: Ah, two of them, yes, not just one. Assuming so, yeah. Yeah, so my first postdoc was on how to make animal models of Alzheimer's disease. So learning how to make transgenic models, how to characterize them, um, how to do the histology studies that would allow you to show X, Y, or Z pathology in them. And then I got engaged and my husband re- had remained in California while I was in Baltimore learning Alzheimer's models. And so I moved back to California after just three years of my first postdoc. And I picked up a second one returning to Caltech, this time with Henry Lester, mm-hmm. where I was planning to learn electrophysiology.
1: So you mentioned that you worked on sort of tool development um, in one of, in your first postdoc. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at your website and, and from your talk, Um, It seems very important to you to look at the very specifics of what these tools are and to really characterize them. Uh, Could you speak to uh, what motivates you to do that?
2: Two things. First, I want the tools that I develop and publish to be reproducible and useful to other people. So one of the scariest things that happen is that you go out to a new place and somebody says, you're Jankowski, you're the one that made that appps PS1 model, that doesn't get plaques until, you know, twice the age you said it would. And then you just wanna crawl under the table and pretend that your name is anything but what it is. Um, I don't like that experience. So I want what I put out to be the real deal and to, especially in print, own up to the limitations of it. And so we have worked, when we've received animal models, one of the first things we do is to characterize them. So you say it's a driver line that expresses in these cells. Well, does it do it in our hands, too? And in fact, many of the models that we're working with, the expression patterns can change. And so your mileage may vary. Check it under your own conditions. And we found that to be very important in order to interpret what we're doing in the brain.
1: Absolutely. Um, So right now, um, what are the big questions you're asking in your lab? What's sort of the overarching theme And mission of your lab
2: so one of the things that I didn't talk about today but I am pretty jazzed about is understanding um, whether or not there is hope for animals and let's by extension say people who have gone beyond the case where just stopping the production of a beta is enough to reverse behavioral deficits
1: so So. there's been a lot of stuff clinical trials that have sort of yeah yeah, recently can you right? So those
2: clinical trials have generally been done in patients with mild to, let's just say, moderate Alzheimer's disease, often with not yet completely pronounced but noticeable memory deficits. And the trials have almost unilaterally failed to reach their clinical endpoints. That's led the field to conclude that maybe targeting A-beta is too little and too late, and if we're going to be successful, we have to go to pre-symptomatic patients. I agree that that may be the most successful way to get in and prevent Alzheimer's disease from happening, but I also think it's going to be practically very difficult. So if you think about, and I have been thinking about because of grants that have come up in Texas, think about rural Texas. How many patients in rural Texas are going to be able to get to a CT or a PET scanning facility where they have radioisotopes that can be used to diagnose the presence or absence of amyloid plaques in their brains? not many of them are going to take the time or have the insurance that will pay the cost of doing those imaging studies. And so they may still continue to be diagnosed after symptoms appear, in which case the clinical trials so far would say, we don't have anything for you. And so one of the things that we're working on in the lab is, at least within the limitations of our amyloid-based animal models, what can we do when one therapy alone isn't effective? Can we do something where we, say, combine two different complementary attacks on the same thing and improve outcomes? So that's something that we're working very hard on in the lab right now.
1: So that's, yeah, it sounds like a great approach. I think there's, there's still a bit of the field that's also looking for maybe the quicker, um, easier such biomarkers or something of Alzheimer's that, that you could implement in, say, these more rural areas. Yes. And, uh, and maybe be able to identify people, populations that need the interventions earlier. Yeah. And um, I
2: think that's a fantastic idea. I am all for go forward on all fronts. I, I do not mean to disparage any way of moving forward on this disease because I think it's, they're all going to be important.
1: Um, maybe we can take a step back and actually walk through a little bit of what the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease looks like. Mm-hmm. What are the specific, what's the progression at the neuronal level? Um, would be great.
2: So uh, basically, uh, the idea now is that you can start forming amyloid deposits in your brain up to 15 or 20 years before you have cognitive signs of the disease. And that following the aggregation of the amyloid into plaques, this, in a way that we still don't understand, initiates the formation of intraneuronal aggregates called neurofibrillary tangles, the formation of these tangles is thought to literally choke off the cells in which they form, leading to neurodegeneration and the loss of those neurons, which in turn then may precipitate the cognitive symptoms of the disease, and those obviously progress to the point where they are irrecoverable.
1: And amyloid has um, it has it has functions normal, you know, it's, it's it's supposed to be there, and then something goes wrong. Is that the case?
2: Uh, that's not clear. And yeah. so there is limited data to show what what the amyloid precursor protein itself or the A-beta peptide may be doing normally. And indeed, you can remove the amyloid precursor protein and your animals are for the most part normal. There are subtle deficits in learning and memory, but nothing near what you might predict for a protein that should be important in learning and memory. And similarly, amyloid beta its role in synaptic plasticity or its role in synaptic homeostasis has been hard to prove. And there are a limited number of studies that have done it very well in culture models or organotypic slices. But not much in the, when you view it over more time in an intact animal.
1: Great. So that's one element of the lab that you're working on. What are some of the other questions that you're asking? Uh, mm-hmm. interventions in Alzheimer's, what are some of the other aspects you're probing?
2: So some of the other aspects um, that we're excited about now are a collaborative approach that has initiated at Baylor, where Huda Zogby has started a very large screening effort that is in parallel screening the druggable genome in cell lines and in fly models of the disease. The cell lines overexpress either the amyloid precursor protein or tau. The flies do the same thing, and in each case, you can take siRNAs against individual druggable genes, introduce them into either model system, and ask, okay, do we as a result of knocking down protein X end up with a change in the levels of either of these two presumably pathogenic proteins, amyloid precursor protein or tau? And she's beginning to get cross-validated hits. So things that are turning up both in cell lines and in flies can be validated through secondary screens. And then our lab is collaborating with them uh, along with Hui Zhang's lab at Baylor in order to do the validation in mouse models, where we ask in an intact model system, what impact does lowering these genes that have come out of these screens have on pathology in the brain, and ideally, we're moving towards what impact does it have on cognitive decline in these model systems that we've mapped out.
1: Yeah, and so, of course, the advantage of doing these these large screens is you you have the opportunity to test a lot of things yep. versus mouse. They're expensive. They take a while to breed. Making many different types of mice are, and injecting them just takes forever. But we have the, the cells and the, uh, and the flies, and we can just go through a lot of them and really, really... You know, see what comes out of that, and then test it in the mouse, and then from the mice we're like, oh, then it's a whole nother question if it works in humans. Indeed, you know, obviously. Indeed. Um,
2: but if you can find pathways that are evolutionarily conserved through human cells, Drosophila, and mice, and all work in the same, all have the same impact on the amyloid precursor protein or tau. That's pretty promising. I would say that's reasonably strong evidence and perhaps stronger evidence than many pharmaceutical companies would have going into at least first round clinical trials. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think that's a really neat approach. The power yep. of
1: genetics. Absolutely. Yep. Why it, it seems to me that Alzheimer's has been sort of really difficult to characterize, um, maybe versus other neurodegenerative diseases. Parkinson's and whatnot, or in in terms of developing therapies, is that the case? And why have we had so much trouble really specifically finding the mechanisms that are behind the disease? And why might that be the case?
2: Uh, I think the why won't be answered until we solve it. Yeah. And then we will look back and go, well, duh, we were looking in the wrong place all the time. You've been looking under the, you know, street lamp and actually it was actually over here under the trees. So I don't have an answer for that. The one thing that people will often come back to is, well, it's a very complex disease and, you know, learning and memory is very hard to understand even when it works well. I don't know why we haven't solved it yet. I can say that the, You know, animal systems are long and slow and the models we have are incomplete and we probably should be coming at this from many more directions and many more model systems. Funding is tight. That isn't always feasible. I think we have come a long, long way from where we may have been 10 or 20 years ago. I am always astounded to look back and think, man, when some of my my mentors came into the field a lot of what we understand about the processing of the amyloid precursor protein or even its identification as a gene associated with autosomal dominant early onset alzheimer's disease wasn't done that was that's all within the last 25 years 35 years so i think it has come a long way it's just slower than anybody would like
1: and there's a there's a little bit of urgency i think the NIH set aside a little bit of extra money, or maybe Obama had a directive like, we're going to give a little bit more money to Alzheimer's disease, Mm -hmm. because it's going to be such an economically impactful disease. And, you know, by 2050, there's going to be a large increase of the population and such an expensive disease to treat. Yes. So that these are all signals of the urgency of actually, you know, getting some, some progress on some real treatments that can like, yeah so yeah exactly yeah,
2: definitely. it's definitely not a time when you want to see the pharmaceutical companies you know bailing out of neuroscience because it's such high risk and so costly to do the clinical trials it's a time where you want to see whatever the government can do to help get those things done happen and you want to see not just i'm not sure if the money that's come recently is just a movement of money from yeah. other directives at the nih and that, I think, would be a shame because I think it would benefit everybody to support all of the work that's ongoing at the NIH and provide extra rather than pulling away from somebody else. You know, There are lots of diseases that need urgent research.
1: And certainly... Um, w- when we work out some basic science in one aspect, molecular biology or something, it really it often translates into, oh, now we have these new tools for neuroscience, you know. Yes. And then we can ask a whole new slew of other questions, working out these genetic stocks with mice and cells and whatnot. Yeah, I
2: think Carl Disroth has a wonderful line about that, you know, both in looking back at GFP from jellyfish, of all things, or looking back at his own light-activated channels coming from uh, bacteria, for instance. So without the basic research, the now you know, super advanced optogenetic manipulation of neural circuits might not have happened.
1: In part of your talk today, you talked about the, the sort of physiological deficits that are seen in your model of Alzheimer's disease in your mice. Do you have a sense for, uh, I think you sort of hinted at it, but why that has not been investigated as much in, in other labs and in the recent past? and and uh and what are you how are you approaching it i guess
2: so alzheimer's people who make alzheimer's models or do histopathology have that as a skill set they generally don't have as a skill set high end electrophysiology or the ability to do in vivo multi tetrode recording each of those skill sets requires a long internship a long learning curve and so by the time you get to the top of one learning curve you're setting up a lab you're trying to get funding for your own stuff and you just keep chugging forward doing your own thing because that's what you can fund um, and i think the i have been lucky that i came in at a time and came into an institute that really did promote and value collaboration and i have a fantastic collaborator who is been patient in trying to teach me all of the terminology of the recordings that we're doing. And conversely, he's benefited from interactions with my lab because we do all the mouse modeling and the pathology and can help out with that stuff. So I think it's maybe, maybe we have benefited in a unique way by the circumstances we found ourselves in.
1: And using that combination of techniques. What are sort of the, what's the general thrust of the questions that you're asking? And what have you found out from those experiments?
2: So the thrust of what we're asking at this point is to say, all right, let's move beyond behavior. We know these animals are now cognitively impaired. Everybody and their brother now has a mouse that has either tangles or plaques and cognitive impairment. But we don't understand where the cognitive impairment is coming from. We don't understand what circuits are dysfunctional. We don't understand how they are dysfunctional. We don't understand where the dysfunction is starting and where it's uh, what part is chicken, what part is egg. We know nothing about this because we haven't had the tools to drill down at that level yet. And so I think that's really exciting. And I was really excited to hear about people here at UT who are bringing their tools either in viral genetics and um, engineering of brain circuits or in electrophysiology to bear on the problem of deficits in Alzheimer's model circuits. And I think that's, I think is going to be maybe the next step in understanding why do they show the, why do Alzheimer's patients and the mouse models that we use to study them show particular cognitive deficits in a
1: particular stereotyped order say you get a call from the nih one day and they're like we want to give you as much money as you need uh unlimited funds for the next five to ten years um what would you how would you invest that in terms of advancing your research projects
2: Uh, (laughs) aside from the obvious which was you know first I'd give myself a salary increase okay, and then yeah. following that, I might consider, yes, raising the salaries of everybody in the lab so that everybody could live at a reasonable- sure. Yeah. Anyhow, once you get past all of that stuff, who? I want to see more people. Actually, I want to see more hands on deck in my own lab. I think that's the thing that we need. Yeah. I want to get to a really neat critical mass where we have enough people that are stably employed but they're stably employed in a way that they are willing to take risks so that it's not about, you know, I I need to get this paper, it needs to be analyzed in this particular way. I was telling Michael earlier today, I know how to grind up the brain and look for levels of soluble and insoluble A beta. I have been doing that since the cows came home. Well, all yeah, right, 10, 15 years. Um, but I want to do the next step. And as you heard today, I, I'm still really rough about the next step. You know, my understanding of place cells or circuit properties in, in that regard is still really rudimentary. But I want to use those tools. I want to learn those tools so that we can start asking neater questions and more refined questions about what's going on in the brain. And I think that's what I would like to have.
1: And what about in terms of model systems, say, certain types of mice? Ooh, okay. The perfect mouse, though, can...
2: I don't think the perfect mouse exists. It doesn't. It doesn't so far. And people have been trying for, you know, 20-plus years at this point. I'll tell you, this is my, you know, harebrained idea, but I think what I would like to do if I were, again, you know, NIH said, here, here's all the money in the world, you know.
1: Suitcase full of money. Yes,
2: do what you need to do. I would love to start exploring other organisms so mice don't have the same amyloid precursor protein sequence as humans they don't process their own app in the same way and they as a result never develop amyloid plaques there are other species that do and we've never tried manipulating those other species and i think we should so there are rare places that are starting to manipulate um, non-human primate species and generating transgenic non-human primates I'm, I don't have that capacity, but I'm thinking what about guinea pigs? What about ferrets? What about rat? What about all of the other species? They that... all
1: develop Alzheimer's? No, I, I'm not
2: saying that. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm saying we should start looking yeah. at them. And I don't know whether or not all of them have been looked at for amyloid pathology. Right? You'd have to age them out long enough in order to explore it and then have somebody with the interest to stain them up to study that. And it has been done for dogs. It has been done for bears. It has been done for monkeys and all of them develop amyloid plaques. But so far, this, I'm probably not going to be making transgenic bears and, you know, (laughs) dogs. You know, I might end up putting myself on a hit list. Um, but there are a whole bunch of other species that I think we could explore in terms of trying to find Mm. what would make a better model.
1: I yeah I wasn't aware that even uh, other mammals dogs and bears and whatnot develop plaques and yep. potentially uh, Alzheimer's like disease I suppose you might call it and it's the next step is it must be and maybe in most mammals do and maybe yeah these these ferrets and 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 squirrels or something you know something that's a little more tangible we haven't even looked yeah and exactly. that's
2: that's more the question is okay so if they do can we push it along and do they the mouse models we I showed you today we can overexpress the amyloid precursor protein and make plaques until the cows come home in their brain we can fill the brain with amyloid they never develop tangles why is that what are we missing in the mice that is happening in the humans or are they really two separate processes that we just happen to be modeling one and we can model the other but we have to do it in a different route so if they are if it's telling us they're really different processes um, then we should be able to do that in multiple species if they aren't separate processes. And at least the sequencing of pathology in Alzheimer's disease suggests they're not separate processes at this point, although it's not strong enough to refute it. One should beget the next, and we should be able to find should be able to develop a model system in which that happens.
1: Great. Shifting gears a little bit, what do you enjoy most about being a scientist? Your chosen career path.
2: Really? It's when one of my, the people in the laboratory calls me to the microscope and shows me some fantastic fluorescence image. It just, it just leaves me smiling at the microscope and then, you know, going between objectives to see, you know, at higher and higher magnification. Oh, oh, there's a dendrite. And then, oh my God, you can see the spines on this one. And then that just jazzes me out. The art. Part of science,
1: I guess I would say. That moment, the the sort of payoff, I guess you know, you've developed all, spent all this time developing this mouse, yeah, doing this behavior, whatever, and then looking at the result.
2: Yeah, for me though, it's the visual result. It's something yes. that is visually pleasing. So if somebody yeah. showed me a Western blot where yes, you shut down the protein, that would not be as, mm, as yeah. fundamentally, yeah. sort of intuitively just happy this as is, seeing a really
1: nice microscopic fluorescent image. Yeah, the, that is the biology right there. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing it with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. It's the same or different or whatever. And it's pretty. It's yeah. just stunning. I can never get tired of looking at neurons. There. Or uh,
2: astrocytes or, or microglia. Astrocer, yeah. I mean,
1: I love all of them have fantastic morphologies. Absolutely. Do you have anything else sort of in maybe in your other issues maybe in your professional life that you're interested in or work towards um, uh, would like people to know about? Uh, no. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. <laughs> so,
2: to be honest, yeah. setting up a new lab and getting that lab yeah. up and running and successful and funded to the point where I can successfully compete for tenure, a tremendous has occupied almost all of my life so far so at this point now i i'm dying to get back to all of the things that i love doing i used to love rock climbing and there's while austin has fantastic places to climb outside houston is flat as a pancake yeah but we've got a great rock gym Okay, you know i used to love sewing i have two i have a beautiful my own whole sewing room at home and i've not touched either machine in six years since arriving but it's one of those things where I'm getting there. The lab is getting there, and things are are starting to finally coalesce in a way that I can see the light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Great. Do you do outdoor rock climbing, or back in the day? Back in the day, yes. I
2: did outdoor. I did traditional. I did sport. I did
1: you know rock walls, whatever.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Did, have you done any of the well-known climbs or whatever? Oh, geez,
2: no, no, no. The yeah. the most of the climbs that I did were back on the East Coast. Yeah. And so it was like the Schwangunks in New York we used to go climbing at and Seneca Rocks in West Virginia. Yeah. So those were the, the two bigger places that we would go. And there were a whole bunch of local places outside of Baltimore where we would go to climb that were just day climbs. Yeah. Was but just, yeah. You're thinking of something like, you know, Half, half Dome. dome. <laughs> no, no, no yeah. I have not done <laughs> Half Dome. I have stood at the bottom and looked up and going. Holy cow! That is
1: big. Yeah. Is, would you like to do that maybe one day? Just no. No, <laughs> I have no
2: desire whatsoever to climb Half Dome. Yeah. But I would like to get back to you know day climbs where yes. you're up there and you're on point, sticking things into the rock that you hope are going to hold, yeah. with the idea that you don't ever want to test them because yeah. you just want to keep going up.
1: Yeah. Were you following that story of those those two guys? Mm-hmm that was it the north face or I don't know exactly what I don't know either what wall it was yeah they they climbed without assistance essentially just with their bare hands without rope mm-hmm. assistance. Took nineteen days to get up the thing and and bloodied their hands the entire time. I was like wow, that's something I would never do. yeah In anything, <laughs> See, and you ask me, is that something enough. you would like to do? Uh, yeah. No, no, I don't want to do that.
2: I'm really bad even at camping, right? We used to camp at campsites that always had warm running water and like flush toilets. or
1: something, you know, like, yeah.
2: Seneca oh. Rocks and Schwan both had places like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, is there anything else you would like to share? Solving
2: Alzheimer's. I mean, cripes. Woo-wee! It's, yeah. uh, I have no idea. I mean, and yeah. to be honest, my father is in moderate to severe Alzheimer's right now. Like, he can't remember. Um, he will... Like pour milk into a cereal and eat a cereal and then he can't remember that the milk at the bottom is really his like That's how short-term his memory is right now And my dad's the one that got me into science, right? He's the reason that I am And he came down with Alzheimer's long after I started working on it So it wasn't that that motivated me to go into the disease and most of the time I find that Like undergraduates who come in and say yeah, you know, my grandmother had Alzheimer's I really want to work in your lab not good enough. You know, yeah. that is not enough motivation for you to actually stay with it and do what we do on a day to day basis. Because yeah. most of the work is
1: so far removed. Tedious. Yeah. And
2: you spend most of the time cleaning up after mouse poop, right? Yeah. That's most of our life. But damn, we need to do something about this. Cause damn, it's, it's really devastating yeah. to see. And it's going to be really expensive for you guys, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> like. Who's going to end up bearing it? It's going to be the younger generation. Just as you get out to start working, all these old folks are going to be coming down saying, "Yeah, well, I need you know long-term care now. Who's paying for that?"
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Goodness gracious. So, we got student loan debts, though. You guys have to pay that <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Um, so, as a society,
2: how do you deal with that? Goodness I gracious. I don't know. I don't. It's, we, got our,
1: we got our work cut out for us.
2: Yeah, it is why Why haven't we solved it? That's yeah. a good question, and I will continue to think about that because
1: I don't know. Thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you Appreciate very much.
2: It. it was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.